1642. And you know I can't count that high. And we're live. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, it's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. We are the podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. Mostly that's stock, but we just roll with it. But uh, without further intru- uh, ado, we're going to let our guest, Ms. Julia. You do. You have a very pretty face. But we're going to move on and we're going to let Julie introduce herself. So Julia V, can you tell us, uh, our listeners, who you are? Hi, I'm Julia V. I'm a science fiction and fantasy writer, and it is my pleasure to be with two friends tonight for a really fun fireside chat. <laughs> well, technically, this was not a fireside chat. This is just an interview, but we've had you on fireside chat, so I, I get the confusion. I just like, hey, I get to hang out with my two friends, so that's what makes it work well, for me. Well, well we well. enjoy having you, too, and Doc's like a super fan of the series we're here to talk about, so we'll, we'll get into that, but I've the next part the of the introduction... And I you, like I said, super fan. But uh, so the next part of the introduction, dear listeners, how we first found them. So I don't know about Doc, but I know Julia and I met in 2018 at the Vegas Writers Convention. Uh, we were sitting on some of the same panels, so we started talking, and it was just nice to see people that tried to um, tell military science fiction from slightly different perspectives, so it didn't feel cookie cutter and robotic. Um, Doc and I have talked about that a lot. How some of that. Uh, Mill sci-fi can be same same and you were writing unique perspectives so it made it fun which we really liked but that is not how you met her doc because you weren't in vegas with us that year uh, no, i know we called you for bail money and you ignored us uh yeah well i know better than to answer your calls late at night um <laughs> uh, hers yes yours no um actually we met when we had her on to talk about the story bundle, her book oh, with them. Oh, that's right. We did, Kevin, J. And Kevin J. Anderson, I think, has another story bundle going on right now. For he a always has a story bundle. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but yeah, and then we spent some time together also at Dragon Con, which was totally fun. It was wonderful. Um, and then she sent me this book. She goes, hey, you sound stressed. Here's a book. Go ahead and read it. Oh, and here's some cake. Mooncakes. See, we have Wait, matching books. Yeah, she sent me mooncakes. Books are nice. Cake is better. Well, it was um, like autumn harvest. And so there's these traditional little cakes that get passed around for family and friends. And uh, Seska, I know, loves to try new food. Oh, yeah. I also sent yarn. And yarn. It was like a box of my favorite things. <laughs> Yes, so I sent a Vampire Slayer book, some cake, and yarn, because that's how we roll. It was perfection. I uh, can't complain about that. Nope. Um, I, I mean, yarn's not my thing, but, you know, food and books, yeah, you got me. So, all right, really Doc. Good. That is good to know. I will try them the next time the opportunity presents. But in the meantime... We're here to uh, to let her see if she passes the new religion question. Since she's been on the show before, we had to mix it up a little bit. Okay, so we have Battlestar Galactica, Buck Rogers in Space, and Space 1999. Apparently, JR went retro. I, you know, was all about Battlestar Galactica, but, like, I really like the reboot. I watched the, the original. I did, too. I, I like them both, to be honest, and they're... I thought the reboot, they did a good, 
a good job of keeping true to certain aspects of it and the spirit and heart within it. So it, it I mean, it was really good. So definitely, I, I think the best choice out of those three options that JR picked. Yeah, I mean, what I loved about the reboot was like, it kind of makes that question, like, what does it mean to be human, right? Like, yeah. Like the and emotions. What does it mean to be feel, also right? not just human, but sentient versus like, does being flesh and bone really matter? I, I feel like what we're think- bumping up against all of that right now in science. Like the things that people are seeing with AI and the things that they're doing with cells, like it, these, these questions are going to be like regular conversational topics at dinner soon. Very much. So, so. first let me, let me enter a correction. Cause I typoed uh, that one. It's actually Buck Rogers in the 25th century, not in space. Uh, and one of the things that's actually come up recently, I don't know if you guys follow chess, but the recent grandmaster, one of the grandmasters was beaten by a young upstart. And so they accused him of cheating by wearing implantable beads. You can look it up if you want to know more. This is a family friendly show. We will leave story. it at that. Yes. I've read and this. they said he was getting Morris code from a, someone who was feeding the opponent's moves into an AI. Now, I think the story is hogwash because the guy was just too quick. Uh, but rather than debate that, you can you can watch all the videos where they break it down. The point is, is we're at a point where it, insertable technologies that allow you to communicate are already getting there. You have people that have lost limbs, able to move them with uh, rigs like waved to or tied to brain waves. So, I mean, I, I think transhumanism is starting to be now. Yeah. You know, when you get Ken on here, he makes limbs for a living. He's a prosthetics guy. So like when he comes to talk about, nice. videos, I, I think it'll be, you guys can explore all of that. Right. Cause like he was a cybernetics major. Yeah. So no. when we do the transhuman panel, we have to have him. That's what you're saying. Yes. He did talk about prosthetics at Dragon Con. Like there was a panel about that, I think, for cybernetics. Yeah. Oh yeah. There I know there is. I'm not sure if he was on it. But if he goes to Dragon Con, I know who to get him how to get him on that panel. <laughs> All right. So I scribbled that down, Doc, but uh we've got some more religion questions to make it. So now for the fantasy ones dragon slayer excalibur or the last unicorn Ooh, i was always a dragon slayer fan but you know that was like formative for me i missed out on the last unicorn so i guess there's a hole in my canon <laughs> there so the there, good news is it is go ahead doc there's a neat article on it i'll have to send it to you where apparently some of the Original people from Studio Ghibli, I can never pronounce it, but we're also, Ghibli, I think, yeah, we're also involved with the Last Unicorn animation team. Mm, we are big Studio Ghibli fans in my house. So yeah, you really need to watch it because apparently they, when they, the company farmed it out to the company that eventually became that studio. So the good news is your kids are of the right age. You could watch it with them and call it research or bonding or parenting or anything other than embracing your inner child. Because you, you could do it and be mature. That's my excuse anyway. I don't know. I, I mean, the kids, I, I, we took them to Disneyland when they were little. Clearly, you know, my husband and I had way more fun than the kids did there. So it was really all about us, even though we said it was for their birthday. <laughs> See, I right, don't even make pretend. I'm just like, no, we're doing it because it makes me happy. So, and because of what's right, Doc, we added a 
Go ahead. Okay. Ooh, yes. We did a third one. Underworld, Blade, or Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. Okay, I love Blade. I, I mean, I know they're going to reboot it um, soon, but I'm a big fan of that, of that movie. Oh, no. And, you know, Blade's awesome. I, Underworld is pretty amazing, too. I enjoyed the... the um... This, I don't know. It's just everything about the cinematography on that one was good. It was well done as well. Uh, I wasn't as huge a fan on Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter, but eh, it wasn't bad. So I think, yeah, when the, we had our vampire talk and we were talking about vampire movies, I was saying, like, I just also loved Lost Boys. Lost Boys yeah. is a phenomenal movie. Uh, I love Doc it. Doc was very disappointed she couldn't make that chat. Um, I will. Football has taken over her life right now. Uh, something me, or, the nerd, geek, and dork never thought I'd have, have said about me. So you need to look him in the eye when you see Viking later and be like, foosball is the devil! Peace I have it on good authority. <laughs> yeah, alright, Doc. <laughs> so, as you know, we love both sci-fi and fantasy, but which was your first love? You know, it was actually sci-fi because my dad and I watched Star Trek together every night. <laughs> so, which one? We watched the original with Captain Kirk, right? Like in Leonard Nimoy. You were watching so, those reruns. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, she was. You're of an age of the. I know she's not old enough to have watched the originals. Uh, like I know me. when I was little, the um, yeah. I mean, you know, I was there when he parted the Red Sea, but that's besides the point. Uh, like I do remember watching forever. <laughs> Hmm? Yeah, it was. It was, she said it was in syndication forever. forever. It, was like five, it was like at oh, 5 yeah. p.m. or 5.30. So you could just like eat dinner and watch Star Trek. I mean, that's... Yeah, I like the next generation. I missed I mean, TNG. Who? So like I basically went from Star Trek, the original, to all of a sudden watching um, the, the one with Captain Janeway, Voyager. Voyager. Yeah. So my husband and I always watched Voyager and we loved it. But I missed like... The Next Generation, Babylon 5, like the ones in the middle. Babylon 5. Okay. Well, now you've got projects. You can go back and rewatch them. So, I mean, we can we can totally do a Babylon 5 episode, though. We actually have that on the list, Doc. We were going to get together. There's even some authors that have written in those franchises that we can have to come on and nerd out over it that we know. I know, um, like, Kristen Catherine Rush has written some Star Trek stuff, and her husband, Dean Wesley? No. Yeah, Dean, Dean Wesley Smith. Um, yeah, we were oh, having there we go. dinner when we were at when I was at the anthology workshop this summer, and Dean talked about that experience of uh, writing and that franchise and, you know, just the fact that there's such super fans, right, for, for that. They um, are. Babylon 5 is not Star Trek. I mean, if you know the history of the creation of Babylon 5 and Deep Space Nine, you could argue that it's off-canon Star Trek. It is not. Or maybe Star Trek was off-canon Babylon 5. It is way too great. Well, either way, that sounds like a discussion for a panel we will have to schedule. But in the meantime... Ask your question, JR, before I hurt you. So what was your first memory of engaging in speculative fiction? Was it watching Star Trek with your dad or was there something before that? Um, well, before that, my dad was like quite a storyteller. So when I was a kid and, you know, I wanted a bedtime story, he would tell me these wuxia stories. But back then I didn't know they were wuxia. I just thought they were stories. So I didn't know they were 
martial arts fantasy type stories like Shansha or Wuxia. Instead, I just thought like that's what bedtime stories were, that there were these um, heroic feats, you know, with this, you know, kind of um, really uh, kind of supernatural elements to them. And that's how I grew up, right? My, I think even now, like my, my dad and I have talked about that kind of fiction. And um, as a kid, I'm not even sure I thought it was fiction. Like I, I might've thought that those things actually happened and these were just my dad's anecdotes that he was recounting to me. I thought, I think it's kind of cool that, that your first exposure was oral history. Cause that's kind of where all storytelling starts and it's as old as man. I mean, yeah, I mean, we're all parents, imagine... here, so, you know, our kids, I'm sure, you know, there were times we had to tell them a story and we didn't have a book with us. So we had to like go free form. Right? So my stories were something a little bit closer to what you saw. If you've watched the movie, major pain, the little engine that could, you should mm. watch that movie with your boys. It's, it's iconic. Uh, it's a classic comedy military adventure. But uh, so how did your love of um, speculative, or excuse me, how, what is it you love about speculative uh, tales all this time, really, Doc? What is it about speculative fiction that you love? I think that, um, you know, we, we're tied to this world with our five senses, right? But the, the otherworldly or sort of the, the magical element or supernatural is always really interesting to me. Uh, it's the same way I think there's sort of this universal appeal of a portal fantasy, right? Going somewhere where special things happen like Narnia. Um, so I've always liked those types of stories. Okay, I, I get that. So when you were watching those stories as kids or listening to your dad tell you them at bedtime, did you ever like imagine yourself in those worlds and carry the stories on when the story officially ended? That's a really good question. And I, I think it didn't happen until later. Like when I was in elementary school, there was a book I checked out of the school library over and over again. And I wanted to be that character. It was a doll who went on an adventure Right. So it was like this um, big picture book where this doll went on a, a magical adventure with like seagulls and castles and whatever. And I I I probably filled up the card on the front of that book because I checked it out all the time and I wanted that adventure for myself. Like so that would probably be the first time where I saw myself in a story. OK, so did you ever get that book for your kids when they were of appropriate ages so they could experience it? No, you know, with my sons, they uh, they had different kinds of taste, right? And uh, I would say yeah. my older one loved Harry Potter and like Thomas, like the choo-choo train type stories when he was little. Um, my younger one now, I uh, we're doing some Rick Reardon stories. Uh, so Rick's got some good ones. We should invite him on the show. I don't know. That might be a big ask for us, but you know what? I'm going to reach out. Worst you they know, could tell me is. Yeah. I mean, I love middle grade and I think um, Rick Reardon's doing these amazing things with his imprints where he's bringing on more voices to his um, Hyperion or whoever the publisher yeah. is. Yeah. So I think it's awesome. So how did your love of speculative fiction as a genre and listening to those stories and reading those stories transition into you deciding to tell your own stories and write them down? 
I, I know a lot of people say that they were always a writer and I feel like that was for sure my story. I was always a writer. I was the kid in, um, in class with like a notebook and like stacks of books and I just love to read and I love to tell stories. Um, but it became a real thing. And with my co-author Ken, when we were about 12 or 13, so now I'm dating myself. I'm going to explain that we were co-writing a story and we would exchange it on a five and a quarter floppy. So we were typing these stories at home on our little PCs and then like sharing a floppy drive and the, a floppy disk. And then he would print them and like he had a daisy wheel printer. So you can imagine it sounded like thunder in his house like at night. I've, I've heard those. Stories. I, it's cool that your parents... Um sort of indulged that because they could have complained about the cost of ink and paper. They could have. I mean, it was the kind of paper where it had little holes and like, Oh, I, I remember this. <laughs> I do too. So is there any chance the world will see that story you two first uh, uh, created together? Oh my God. No, it was terrible. Like I, I have it. On, <laughs> I have it in a box and I was like, wow. I mean, it was, you could see our early, love of fantasy right because it's a merlin based story so clearly even then we really loved sort of the magic angle and magic users and that was exciting to us um but uh we were also very prolific like we wrote very long stories for 14 year olds <laughs> one of these days we'll have to have you both on the show and we can talk about the uh the origin story of you guys as co-writers because I feel like that that development would be entertaining to hear when both of you are on. You know, so, I, so um, we'll have to make that happen. Yeah, we always joke like together we're like one brain, <laughs> so it's working out for us. You know, yeah, it would with his background on prosthetics, it might be plausible. Yeah, and sometimes um, I will write a scene that is like too scary for me and I can't finish. And he will come and like, he's, he's got much more of like a, a horror bent. Like I think he, like we both like fantasy, but his overlap for horror and dark fantasy is like bigger. And so it works well. Cause then that way the whole piece has a bigger range of um, things for the reader. Uh, yeah. I, I can see the horror element in, in, in one of the creatures. Definitely. Um, so, uh, no lie. I turned on the light. <laughs> so many authors will let their own real life experiences sort of influence the stories they tell. So were there any specific formidable moments that shape you as a storyteller? I think, um, you know, culturally food is important to me. <laughs> so when I write, it's an, it's inevitable that food will end up in the stories, even when it's a short story. Um, but more that um, my life experiences as a, as a trial lawyer, I try to keep that out of um, my books. But here's where it shows up. If you're making a deal with a fae, right? <laughs> and you're bargaining, I find that my work skills tend to be useful in writing those sections. <laughs> I can totally see that. Oh, yeah. So do you use them for the good side of the good or the side of the fae? Um, I think just about being super specific, right? The English language is so amazing. We have so many words to narrow down exactly what we mean and what circumstances things should apply to. Um, and since the fae have that, uh, I, can, I think, um, 
that Trixie bent, you know, where you, they're always looking for um, An some kind of loophole, right? <laughs> That's what I use my, my uh, daily training for to try and imagine, okay, well, how can I close this loop or leave one for a story premise for later? <laughs> okay. So I did realize, as I said that question, that I just automatically assumed by default the Fae were evil. Uh, and I wonder how much of that is culturally with the stories I grew up with. So do you in think Faye when you're writing them in this are inherently sort of that evil trickster chaotic kind of thing, or do you envision them when you write as something a little just more wild, but not inherently bad? I think that um, for us, I, I don't, in our world, we don't consider them evil or good, right? They have a range of emotions. They have alliances, right? So they have loyalties that may be different because they're not human um, and their rules are different, right? So, but they can coexist in this world that we wrote. Um, and so it's, it's where, I think where the book gets interesting is where they would diverge, right? When their interests don't align with yours. And this is when you start to see, okay, they have different values than we have, right? And that's when things get interesting. So I grew up, uh, my my grandmother is is half German, so she grew up where that was her first language. Um, and so, you know, you get the Brothers Grimm, but they weren't always so Disney-esque when they first came out. They were some dark stories. And that's the version she told us when we were little. So you better be good or else. Uh, I'm so like, you are. It all makes sense now, come to think of it. So before this becomes the JR Therapy Hour, why don't you ask the next question? <laughs> so transitioning into some of the fun fandom stuff, have you had anybody cosplay a character or fan art yet? No, we, um, we're, we're so excited, though. I mean, okay, so Christian Benjamin did our cover for us, and um, I ended up finding another... Uh, artist um, on Fiverr to do like the character art so we can make tchotchkes and things like that for our fans. But I mean, for me, the visualization aspect of having another artist do your work is so magical, right? Because you're, you're seeing them in your head and like Roxy is somewhat iconic, right? She's got these hammers, right? That are sharpened into stakes at the end. And the way she sees her magic and her relationship to the world is also very literal, right? She's a breaker um, and she breaks things. So I, I, uh, I look forward to when more readers like actually can um, see themselves as like someone like Roxy, right? Um, yeah. And I, I told you this before, when we were doing uh, cover research, we noticed that a lot of urban fantasy heroines wear black leather jackets. So that was a decision we consciously made that she wasn't going to do that. I loved it reading it and um and having done some stuff with cosplay it she's distinctive like you look at her and I've looked at authors and they're like well what do you mean by a physical description I'm like if somebody walked past you dressed as your character how would you know that was your character and not Harry Dresden or Anita Blake and they're like, who, who, they're great characters. I'm not knocking them, but how would you know that? And Roxy is very distinctive. You know, she's always got the hammers. She has not a black trench coat. 
He has other things <laughs> I'm not going to go into because some plots in there. Yeah, oh I mean, I need to give away stuff, but later she gets even more distinctive stuff because oh, of. Um, I love it. Yeah. I, I love it because it's definitely one where I could picture her and I know exactly what she would look like if she walked right in front of me. I actually have, um, I have a family friend. She's a model. And, you know, my family members are like, you have to hire her to cosplay your character because she, she's <laughs> perfectly Roxy. And I was like, oh, my God. So, <laughs> so we joked about that. I was like, okay, well, if I ever do like Comic-Con and I get a booth, like I'm bringing this, I'm bringing this model with me. <laughs> hey, it could work. See, this is... So this is one of those things where we don't have to, this is for you, dear listener. We don't actually have to have read the author's work to do the interview and we can still have fun and, and learn about the books. And a lot of times Doc and I end up buying the books because we have problems. Um, but this is one of the ones where it gets a little different because you've read all of the books, Doc. So when you get a little giddy, it's kind of fun to watch. <laughs> but so, you know. But if you are a cosplayer or a art I'm sure Julia has a way for you to reach out and get her, like show her what you've done. Right. Or, and you can put it in your newsletter. You yes. I um We do have a newsletter and also we have a Facebook group and, you know, I'm also unfortunately probably on Facebook too much, but um, that is a good way to get a hold of me or just even like tweet me. <laughs> so it's, uh, I think it's great. I Lord knows I saw the picture of your dog looking very worried and I am like, he's worried because he wants, he's worried what you're going to do to her next. My dog is tragic though. I mean, <laughs> I should get one with, with the pose like this, you know, <laughs> like cover their head. So I will get the, uh, the newsletter link and the Facebook group link. Cause that is not one of the links I have dear listener. And we will throw that in the show notes. So that way, if you uh, so desire, you can check that out and uh, join those groups. So, so has anyone asked for your autograph in public? Um, when I was at superstars, um, I was in an anthology there, so it was very fun signing, um, signing my name. I mean, I guess I hadn't thought about it before, but I, I uh, I've noticed that certain authors have like favorite pens. Even. Favorite pens. <laughs> I I could see that. So, did you enjoy it? Yeah, it was it was um, a really interesting experience because when you're writing, it's kind of solitary, like you're on your own making mm -hmm. art, making a story, and then then you forget, like it's out there in the world, and that's who you're doing it for. Right? You're doing it for the readers. So when they come back to you and they're like, hey, will you sign this? It's like, oh, why, why yes, I will. <laughs> I think it's great. I love it. That author. I so love do you, if someone gets excited by Doc squeeing out over your book and they're like, you know what, I really want to read this, and then they get hooked and they want a signed copy, is there any way through your website where they can reach out and like, hey, how do I buy a signed copy from you? Yeah. We're going to integrate that so that, um, in fact, I was thinking about doing it after Halloween so that we could put it in our newsletter if people wanted to um, give signed copies for Christmas, because we do have um, a way to do direct sales because that's how we're selling uh, 1.5, right? Um, so mm -hmm. I, I think it'll be easy for us, at least for North American. I, I can't guarantee that we could do that for um, international. What? I will say that your website is is gorgeous, and it made me realize that mine still looks like the 1990s called, and they want it back. So I'm probably going to have to do mine now, and it's all your fault. No, is it because your website looks amazing? 
<laughs> I still have the, the WordPress template that I got back in 2016. I just never changed it. <laughs> I can't take credit. I work with Nate Hofelder from Digital Reader, and um, Nate is just a, a genius, and he takes care of, of things when I have questions. That it, is looks, awesome. it looks amazing. You did well. So, and... But we're going to get back to some of those. Have you spotted your book, one of your books out in the wild yet? No, but I'm I'm living for that moment, right? Like for me to be on a train and to just see like some reader holding it up, you know? I mean, because when I'm on the airplane, I always look to see what people are reading. Don't you do that? Like, oh, what of course. They, <laughs> they might have a good book. So, um what is your weirdest or funniest fan interaction? Most, I was telling JR earlier that most of the interactions I have with readers is they really want to know about the, um, how to get a book published. Like that, I think everyone has a book inside of them that they want to write. And so um, the most normal experiences have been, you know, they've been asking about what to do for their book. The only one that was a little bit funny was, you know, I'm trying to gauge where they are in their publication journey and it turned out they hadn't written their book yet. So I was like, okay, maybe you don't need to worry about this until you finish your book. And, and yeah, it just helps. You, like how we were at Dragon Con and we were um, headed out to dinner. So we took an Uber and the Uber driver said, oh, you're all authors? Like, I want to write a book. And so we had this amazing discussion in the Uber ride about, you know, publishing and um, getting your words out there into the world is, I mean, it's easier than ever in some ways, right? Because of the tools, but in other ways, it's a lot harder to find your audience because there are so many more books. Yes. Oh, yes, there are. So this is the part of the introdu introduction of the interview where we get to ask Julia what she has written. So can you give us the Reader's Digest version of your body of work? You know, so Ken and I started out in military sci-fi and we wrote Near Future. Um, it, it was really for us um, a really fun adventure because we we loved the movies. Aliens was sort of our tribute to Aliens. We were like, okay, um, let's do... I think we thought we would write one book and that ended up being like, I don't know, 300,000 words in that world um, before we were finished with it. Um, and so then we asked each other, well, what else are we reading? What should we write next? Um, and we realized we were both reading so much contemporary fantasy. Like we loved urban fantasy. Um, Ken's a huge fan of the Harry Dresden books. And I loved um, like Faith Hunter and I loved Al Alona Andrews, like the Kate Daniels books. So we talked about our love of those things and we said, okay, well, obviously we're big fans of like the, you know, person with magic or girl with sword, but, you know, can we also make it a little more um, exciting for us by having some Asian elements like Asian monsters and some Asian elements of magic in there. And so that brought up a lot of world building for us. And that kind of branched into what we were doing now with um, our West coast series with Seattle Slayers. And then um, we sold a trilogy to tour, which um, we have publication date now. So, uh, so book one, Ebony Gate will be out July 11th in, um, in 2023. And it's very exciting because I got to see the ARC today, like the ARC copy. And so it started to feel real. 
Nice. So is the um, the trilogy sold to tour in the same universe as the Seattle Slayers, or are they separate? No, it's a different universe. But um, I think our kind of our desire for writing and putting certain stories out in the world came from the same place. We wrote Ebony Gate first. We wrote um, one and two in that trilogy um, before we sold it. And then after we sold it, we said, okay, well, we should do something fun for ourselves. Um, and, and this has a more dystopian feel, which is different, you know, like Ebony Gate, one of the charms of it is this um, magical Chinatown that is kind of like diagonally, but um, it's all Chinese anyway. So that was one aspect because it's set in San Francisco and I grew up there. Um, so it has a lot more of a modern feel to it. Um, whereas Steaks and Bones, it kind of has that like veil where yes, it's modern life, but so many fantastical things are happening because of magic that it, it blurs that line a little bit more. Yeah, well, and it's it says in the book that it's a hundred years after whatever happened to Seattle to bring magic to it. Yeah, there, there's been a hundred years since the, um, the veil went up, right? Which kind of divides the United States, right? So it changes lives for Americans um, so that you have this this set that lives right here in, in, in the West coast where there's magic everywhere. And it's sort of like tech, tech doesn't work. Right. Yeah. So I, th I thought it was really good. I, I liked it. It was, it's kind of a world where you can have one or the other, but you're left kind of like, okay, you can have one or the other, but you, it's, you can't really have both very well. Yeah. And it does make you wonder like, what would you pick? Right. If you could have this, would you give up all the other things? Yeah, I, I love it. I think it's a great series. Thank so. you. We're well, before we dive into that, uh, before we dive into the Seattle Slayers, let's just go ahead and pause while we shamelessly show for the man now, and then we don't have to interrupt the, the fun fest for Doc. In a world where magic is controlled by law and government, mages are both coddled and persecuted. Corey Monroe knows she isn't a mage, and her best friend is. Reality isn't always what you know. If you are looking for an urban fantasy with found family, an education-based magic system, and evolving storylines, try My Luck by Mel Todd, book one in the Twisted Luck series, available exclusively on Amazon. All right, so you gave us the highlight of your body of work, but so we're going to talk specifically about the stakes and Bones, which is the book one of the Seattle Slayers. So how did you come up with the premise for this universe? Like, where did the idea for the series come from? Um, strangely, it came from, like, reading some news report about how um, earthquakes would reshape the West Coast. And then I started to think about other supernatural events that could change the way um, uh, life was for people who lived out here. And then I started to just think, well, what if we didn't have um, kind of the normal, the normal events like sunrise in the morning, like the sun is rising, but what if you can't see it? What if it's covered, right? Like, and, and part of this was because we were having wildfires, really bad wildfires um, in 2020 here in California. And so we were having power outages and wildfires. And I think that did lend itself to this sort of dystopian feel, right? When we looked out and the sky was orange every day, it was crazy. Um, so so that, that started to make me think, and I, I don't know why, but immediately I was like, well, what if you were a vampire and you could walk out in the daylight because 
the sun isn't burning your skin, you know? So it's kind of like blade, but not blade, right? Yeah. Meaning in blade, he has, he has a special gift because he's a day walker, but in ours, it's like any vampire could be walking out in the day because the sun's not burning them. <laughs> yeah. What do you think? Okay. I'll take it. No, that sounds interesting. <clears throat> so normally I, I'm all about the, the pew pew, but this one sounds interesting enough. I might have to check it out over on uh, the ebook. But before we dig in to the specifics of the characters in the series, uh, we're going to take a look at this glorious cover. And you can tell us the story behind it because Doc was swooning over that art. Oh, so I, so when I was working with Christian uh, Bensalon, he is such a gifted artist, right? And he loves dystopian um, backgrounds. And we were like, Christian, we have the perfect project for you. Can you make us like a wrecked landscape for Seattle? Um, and then we told him about Roxy and how she's she's a very powerful person, right? And and um, her role in this book is pretty physical and she carries these hammers. And so this is why you see her standing there on the rubble and she's got um, this lighting behind her because when we talked about like, well, what does it look like in the twilight? We realized, well, it's, it's really going to look like that moment before sunset, right? Um, where it, like all the shades are getting a little bit darker, but you can still see. And so that that's what Christian did for us. Um, and he's, he's really amazing. He is. I've, I've worked with him and he, uh, when he was first starting out, he was testing his skills, making memes. Uh, and it was pretty funny because language barrier was slightly in the beginning worse and so some of the results were hilarious and then when people would explain it to him it was even more funny because then he was doing it on purpose for a while <laughs> so it, it was it was it was fun to watch him troll some people in the beginning this was you know a couple years ago at this point but so so you lucked out with him as your artist He's, he's yeah, got skills. You know, we had we had lucked out because he came in in our series, our military sci-fi series, and he did um, the second cover for us because our our artists had gotten ill for the first cover. So she gave us all the source files and she gave us some recommendations and Christian was on the list. So we worked with him and he did a phenomenal job. And so we, we knew that um, he was really our guy. You can't go wrong with his work is amazing. And as you can see, dear listener, you can check it out for yourself. All right, Doc. The next one is you. I will shut up and let you do your part. So give the 30-second elevator pitch for your, your book. In some ways, I know this is going to sound strange. I think of it as a, like the same journey as Luke Skywalker's, except that with magic and, you know, in a dystopian Seattle. But in the end, the story is about, is this woman going to become um, someone who follows in her father's footsteps, right? And what does that mean for her? Um, so it's it's about a journey of self-discovery and learning, you know, how resilient um, you can be in the face of great odds, right? And so- That's a Jared, very good answer. It is a very good answer, and it's a very quick answer, which is great. Because sometimes people are I'm like, okay, that was like a 10-minute. Yeah, I mean, for us, we were like, okay, in the end, when we were done writing, we are like, what is this story really about? And I said, okay, it's about she wants to know, is she going to be a breaker like her father? Is she going to be someone who can topple cities? And 
um, what is going to happen along the way, like her alliances, her friendships, um, she's really going to figure out who she is, right? And what she's willing to do for people. So JR loves to ask what makes the series special? And I, I really think you have to answer this because I can come up with tons of answers. Because I <laughs> um, I, I've heard the question asked as like, why this book or why um, this person well, I think this time? <laughs> like what makes it urban fantasy? There's a lot of urban fantasy, but what is it that makes yours like, this specific one this is niche this is totally unique that I bring to the table it it had to be us I think because of Ken and I having that diaspora experience of growing up here on the west coast but also having heavy inf Asian influence in our lives right so we wanted to be able to bring sort of like these Asian monsters and you know get it out of anime and into literature for for the for the reader um, so this is very special to us to be able to do that. And also, when I think about our joint writing experiences, because when I'm left to my own devices, I think this, the pacing of my stories is a little bit different. But like, Ken is like a really um, action-oriented kind of writer. And so the two of us, we get this big range we can give the reader, right? Where there's the interior life of the character. And then, of course, these like, top-notch action scenes and these hand-to-hand -hand, like fight scenes and like these life and death harrowing scenes and like the really gory monster scenes they're all in there oh it's, it's definitely a complete package but and I think also um and because as you said you know your first generation there's that also the different culture because the world from going to the veil and before because where she's originally from is a world that's not in the veil is a place not in the veil. It's a very different culture. And you had to straddle both of those growing up. Yeah. I mean, I think, and I think most that of us, you know, understand that we, we're always trying to figure out like where we fit in, whether it's mm -hmm. a new job, a new school, a new city, we've all had that experience. And then when you're, um, when you have that kind of culture gap with your own parents too, right. Where your parents are grew up in another country and then, you know, you're all trying to make a new life somewhere. I think those struggles and things are something I wanted to capture in this book, but I didn't need to make it political. I could just talk about it in, in the sense that this is a fantasy, well, right. Yeah. He's crossed into a magical realm. And like, that means everyone there is like, well, kind of, you know, in equal footing um, as far as how unsettling it is for them. What I also really loved is being, being somebody who's comes from a family of military vets and being a veteran is there's also that aspect where she's talking about her experiences with her dad. And she's like, I didn't get it until I got here because her dad having been a slayer is essentially a veteran in a many ways because of the combat experiences and the, the, the quirks that come from putting your life in harmful situations. Um, so I thought that was really great also that you touched on that because there is that kind of disconnect between generations. <laughs> Sorry. That was my kid coming to get his homework and sneak it back out. <laughs> oh, you know what? At least your kids are not hitting you up for food. 
That's because so, I like, doc- made a pot of soup earlier. So it's like, I know I saw the with the soup. of that soup and it looks so good. Um, the ratio of cheese so, definitely affects like it's um, like, I think high score with the family. <laughs> cheese makes everything better. And no, I'm not from Wisconsin, but <laughs> so doc mentioned the, uh, the angle of the dad's combat experience as a, as a, um, destroyer i think she called it right doc break yeah he's a breaker breaker so was that intentional to cover sort of that effect because i do notice some authors when they write people that have experienced that combat it's like yep that was tuesday moving on and i'm like you do realize you just wrote a sociopath (laughs) because nobody can do that and not have it affect them unless they have like something seriously broken in their head yeah, I think that is um, something that carried over from the military sci-fi writing, right? To 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 recognize that um, when people have these life experiences and these events that are actually quite traumatic, it doesn't just go away. Like you said, it's not just Tuesday and then you know tomorrow is something different and easy to accomplish. It's that everyone needs new coping mechanisms, right? To reconcile what life is like. Yeah. All right, Doc, now that I've derailed you, I'll let you come back in and ask your question. Okay. Um, so which tropes do you think uh actually I'm gonna ask JR likes to ask which tropes do you but which tropes do you feel really you brought in from your cultural heritage into this book? Uh definitely the soup. <laughs> so, <laughs> the, the soup is a big part of like how I grew up. And it's in fact, we even got a text from my bro- my brother-in-law just like an hour ago. He's like, Mom made more soup. Do you guys want some? And I was like, No, I made soup today too. And he's like, But she made so much we won't be able to finish. <laughs> um, and I think that spans many cultures, right? So it's not just like a Chinese thing. Um, so I would say that. For, for me, I always joke about it, how food has to make it into my writing. But Kevin J. Anderson, as an instructor, had said something really interesting. He, he painted a vivid picture about growing up in his town in the Midwest and what it smelled like and what people did every winter and every summer and that kind of thing. And I thought those aspects of your daily life, it may feel mundane, but it makes it... Um, it makes it easier for the reader to anchor themselves. And so I think that's why it's still important to include those types of details. Yeah, I like that. That's that running joke that uh, when you see that big metal pot on, you know, you're going to be eating the same thing for several days. So like, I think every culture at some level, when you go back to the more um, pre-modern times, so, you know, before we all lived cramped in cities, I think all cultures have something like that. And so that's the cool thing is you can have things that set your culture specifically in the context of the story as unique, but ties it to the larger human experience so everyone can relate to it. I, I think that's a neat trick to do that with food. Yeah. And but I'm I sure know, you just wanted to write about food. <laughs> I always just want to write about food. But later when she's a part of Slayers, she's fighting back to back with, you know, non-humans too. And they, they are, um, they, they have to find ways to connect to each other and food can still be one of those tools, right? Everybody's got to eat. Or put hot sauce on it, right? If it's like inedible, isn't that like a thing, JR? That that is a thing in the army. I've known people who've hurt themselves with hot sauce. So I never actually liked the hot sauce. So I made bank um, trading um, the hot sauce for cigarettes. 
um, the cigarettes sometimes were, were worth less than the hot sauce. <laughs> <laughs> because not everyone has to smoke, but everyone has to eat that crap. I mean, that food. So... <laughs> So, Doc, we're going to have to consult our tax consultants and see if we write about food. Does that mean the food when we go crazy is now tax deductible? Food for thought. That's one way to combat inflation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think JR first said we're making more money. Um... That, that helps. So, so, Doc doesn't really like this question, but, but I think it's informative in the age where everyone shops digitally and things are sort of grouped together by niche that is the subgenre in the genre. Um, Doc is old school. She likes the Barnes & Noble speculative fiction aisle, and that's good enough for her. But if you had to put it no, 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 in no, a no, subgenre... No. I am open and prefer a diverse thing rather than classifying everything into tiny, tiny little microcosm boxes. Sometimes boxes help you find what you want. Because when you're moving, you can find anything that you need, JR. Well, I mean, you know, boxes don't have therapy in them, but that's another story for another day. So what uh, what genre or subgenre would you consider this? Would it just be urban fantasy or would it be something more? You know, it's funny. I thought of it as urban fantasy. It doesn't have dystopian elements. But when we were um, getting it on Amazon, they are so like they have you can drill down so niche that like one of the categories was vampire thriller and i was like wow okay i guess we're a vampire thriller <laughs> i i loved it um i would definitely say it's very urban fantasy but you could also put it in a post kind of a post apoc it has a lot of the kate daniels elements to it with that from that's from Alona Andrews series. And we did get some reader feedback about that, which was really great um, because that series is concluded, right? So it was um, 10 books in the main series. And now that it's done, I, I think if readers are still looking to scratch that itch that um, maybe they can find it with us. I did a review of it over on TikTok. I know I joined TikTok and did it. But, um, and I, one of the things, and that's one of the things I said on it and I like it. I love it. I think it's wonderful. So, yay! Nobody realized yet that I liked the book. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about the story itself. So, in the crowded field that is urban vamp vampire thriller goodness, what makes your main character unique? What sets her apart besides the fact that she's not wearing black leather trench coat? <laughs> I think that um, sometimes when I read some of these other books that I really enjoy myself they all have extreme confidence and competency, right? They're already really good at what they're doing. And Roxy isn't, right? When we started this out, we said, this story for us is G.I. Jane meets Buffy, right? She doesn't yes. know if she's good at this yet. And um, we wanted it to mirror, I think, that experience of, of uncertainty and then um, knowing at the end that I belong here, right? So it was, uh, I think, different in that space, right? I, I read a lot of urban fantasy. I really, I really do love it. And the thing you usually get when you read those is that they're great at it, right? Like meaning, you know, Harry Dresden is already a wizard, right? He's already quite skilled. He's skilled enough to school other wizards and, you know, train a young apprentice and all of that, right? But um, Roxy isn't. Right. She's really just starting out. And so and, but she's not going to magic wizarding school. You know, she is she is trying to um, 
carve out her own place in a pretty scary and sketchy uh, setting. Okay. So if you want to make her unique, I'm just saying there's not a lot of top hats and bow ties in urban fantasy. This just is throwing true. that out there. That this could be, true. this could be a unique thing for you. Or maybe there's a reason there's not a lot of it. I don't know. <laughs> so were there any secondary characters that were especially memorable to you in this story? Yes. So um, unexpectedly we became big fans of um this character named Ulf, who is her partner in one of the trials. Um, so that's not too much of a giveaway, but they come from very different backgrounds and uh, they do have to learn to work together uh, to get through the last trial and their lives depend on each other. And we found that that relationship became so much more um, heartwarming for us. We didn't know going in that it was going to be like that. I think going in Ken's favorite uh, side character was Katori, the, the the fox, right? So yeah. she's a she's a fighter character early on. That is, um, she's fighting a cage match, and uh, she's kind of intense. And so I think she was Ken's favorite character. Uh, and by the end, I think maybe side characters, Ulf was my favorite. Okay, so uh, when we post this in the show notes, dear listener, if you were so inspired to our in the, the Facebook group. If you were so inspired to read this, you should comment on uh, on who your favorite side character was. And I will pester Julia until she looks uh, over on the YouTubes or on the Facebooks. So does your, your story have any specific singular bad guy that she's facing off against without spoilers? Or is it more of a man versus nature kind of struggle? Yeah, this is, um like I said, this is like G.I. Jane, right? The bad guy is um, teased in this one and he's revealed in book two, right? So there's a direct face-off with the villain in book two, but in book one, it's really more about her personal challenges to get through this gauntlet that she has to, to, to um, tackle in order to become a slayer. Okay, so speaking of characters, uh, as authors, we put our characters through the ringer. We do lots of not very nice things to them, and we cackle with glee while we do it. So if uh, the main character met you in a back alley and she knew you were the or arbiter of her torment, how do you see that interaction playing out? Ooh, yeah, I think she'd be pretty unhappy with me, especially after some of these scenes that I just wrote in book two. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think she. Oh, so Doc, uh, how how mad do you think she would be having read the books? I mean, we talking like rip her head off and spit down her throat, kind of mad, or just maybe a gentle ass whooping? Um, I I think there's going to be like a hey, let's go on to the sparring match because we're gonna have some talks, <laughs> and uh, but I don't think like she definitely. As long as it wasn't the fox, she'd probably fare pretty decently. Um, but if it was Roxy, I think it would be like, okay, we're going to have a talk. And I need you to do these things. And that can make it up for me. <laughs> I could, so some wall-to-wall -wall counseling. Mercenary and being like, okay, if you want to get out of this, I need you to fix this thing. <laughs> and if, we, if you can fix this thing and maybe this thing, we can, we can probably get along with this. I think you nailed it. Okay. She was, we we had a tagline for Roxy, and it was "Let's make a deal." Yeah, 
So that that is very Roxy. I, I think she'd be like, okay, we can solve this or I can beat your ass. <laughs> so um, do you have a favorite archetype when you're writing? Um, you know, when we, when we sold that trilogy to uh, Tor, the archetype that we concluded with was that we were interested in the senator archetype and that ended up being the villain. Um, so from the hero, like the, the protagonist standpoint, I don't know that we thought so much about archetype, but we thought about redemption arc, right? That is actually one of my favorite character arcs is like the redemption arc, right? Where they, they do something to show the world, like that they, they really are a good person inside, right? <laughs> like mishaps aside. Um, so it's a great question about archetypes. And I feel like for us, the archetype ended up being what we used when we were thinking about the villains. I could see that really being the case. Um, so I'm betting I know the answer to this, but were there any scenes that you cut in the first book to, and saved for later to like, you know, that, that, that would work, but just not here or. Um, yeah. So not to give any spoilers, but there is a side adventure that I was, that, um, that, that came out of book one that we, we wanted to start in book two, but we ended up cutting from book two. Um, and that is a, an adventure with Roxy and Alf that I had started writing. So, um, I think at the end we had like, you know, the epilogue and then the, the, the second epilogue and then I was like okay well I can't fit anymore into book one this will have to go into book two and then we started writing book two and I was like well it's too long now until we get to the inciting incident so this is just gonna have to be a whole side quest right you know what short stories are made of these yes um, so I think this will be like a you know 2.5 kind of short story when we when I get done with it I think that sounds great I I love that you know you clearly have an idea of how this series is going to progress. And I, I think that's great because um, in a world where so many things are uncertain and other than J.R. Martin will never finish the series. <laughs> I think that's probably asserting me at this point. Um, but can you tell us a bit more about the world? I mean, we've talked. So yeah, you know, the world is unexpectedly large, right? So we thought after, you know, so book one ended up being so much longer than we thought it would be. It's like 102,000 words. And, and I thought, okay, well, we've already established the world. You know, this is a world where there's humans living and fighting side by side with Fae and vampires. And, um, and then, you know, they're combating things like demons. And, and there are, of course, all these shifter packs. But once we started delving into, okay, what are the political dynamics of these shifter packs, right? And how does the power structure work for the the, um, the pact, the thing that, that holds them all together? That ended up becoming a much bigger picture. And we could only show a little piece in each book, right? So one of my favorite scenes that we wrote in book two is she gets to go to the Tareem temple. These are the beings that like are responsible for the, the veil existing in the first place. So I think it's a mystery that we couldn't quite get to in book one because book two, book one was already so big, but we got to start book two with it. So that was exciting for us because we, that was the reader feedback we got um, 
is that people asked like, how can, you know, can we find out more, more about this world and why it's like this? And so I hope um, for readers that follow us in the book too, that we start answering those questions for them about why the world is the way it is there. Well, and I like how you're doing it because I don't, as much as I want like the entire explanation, <laughs> I like kind of the teasing out and, and finding it as we go a lot of the time because for one if there's so much there's such a thing as a, too much info dump and for me that wreck can wreck the pace of the story for me yeah we're definitely action adventure oriented so we'll always cut um background in favor of you know more um faster pacing that's just a preference of ours in our writing i can get along with that <laughs> We had pages and pages of background story uh, that we wrote last year before even starting drafting. So, oh, I'm sure because for one, it definitely feels as a fully fleshed out world. So, did you? Um, go ahead. No, go. You're, you're say, did you print it with a dot? Did you print it with a dot matrix printer to give you those old time vibes when you're working with them? <laughs> No, but that would be pretty nostalgic. We did not do that. <laughs> I'm just saying missed opportunities for, for swag for your audience. Yeah. Like, we're, print that uh, and bind it old school style. Yeah. You know, we, we, uh, we were very contemporary. I, we stopped because we were collaborative writers. We use Google docs. Um, when I solo write, I, I use Scrivener. Right. Um, but uh, that way he and I can, Ken and I can both be in the same document um, as we're, outlining and we you know we can redline each other's stuff and it's really helpful for um collaborative writing okay so steak and bones is clearly part of a series we know we've talked about that it's part of the seattle slayer series like what do we can we expect from this series arc is it going to be just a trilogy like the uh the, the one you sold the tour is it going to be more ongoing like the dresden files or supernatural or any of the other more contemporary urban fantasy like what can we expect yeah in my mind this is like an eight book series right so um because it does take time to explore the elements of the world that we wanted to share with the readers and her own arc um you know the books i think cover i mean maybe book one is like a week of her life right yeah. so and then there's like a a three month gap between book one and book two and for book 1.5, it's kind of somewhere in the middle. So I felt like we needed at least eight books to really show a thorough arc where she's no longer a novice. Right. And then um, she has much more of a bigger role to play in Seattle. Okay. So we know every literary universe, at least the good ones, and you write the good ones, um, has their own internally consistent rules of magic, science, and or, tech, um, or technology. Obviously, this is a magic-heavy world. So what sort of magic can we expect from this Okay, universe? so one of my favorite things is if um, magic has rules. I want it to have a cost, right? And um, some magic systems are kind of squishy. Uh, if you've read, I think Brandon Sanderson has a wonderful essay about um, magic systems, like hard magic systems versus soft magic systems. And ours falls somewhere in between, right? There are consequences for using your magic and um, we call it the recoil, right? Effect. And so that was something it took us a while to figure out how to uh, describe for the readers and um, to show how different 
beings in this world navigate the magic. So that was important to us. And, you know, we are very sincere in our world building down to like, I had to figure out the econ- the economy. I was like, oh, okay, well, what do they use for money? Like, how does money work there? <laughs> right? Yeah, that would be uh, a challenge. Yeah, and it came down to silver because we were like, silver is like um, a source for how they enchant things, right? So we realized, okay, it could be extremely valuable. It's toxic to shifters. It had a lot of properties that we realized that were interesting and fed back into like, how does magic work? Mm-hmm. So, so well, who who had more of an input on the magic side of things? Was that you with your sort of legal Socratic method learning that you did at law school? Or was that more the science background that Ken brings to the table that, that formed that? Um, you know, sometimes it's hard to know where one starts and the other begins. But like, I think early on concept wise, I was going big on this. And so I was spending a lot of energy on the um, the rules of this world and the rules of the magic. And um, Ken is, for him, he said writing is like he sees a movie in his head and then he transcribes what he's seeing. So it's it's a different process for him. Whereas I'm much more on the concept side. Like if I get all the rules down, then I can see a story after. So um, structurally, usually I start stuff like that. And then Ken comes in and he really um, fleshes it all out. Okay, that works for me. All right, Doc, you get to ask your favorite set of questions. Well, after the fandom so, con stuff. Of all the magic in this universe, what would you want to have now in this world? Um, I, you know what? I'm very envious of the magic of transformation. I think that uh, for me, one of the fascinations of why I love urban fantasy is I'm, I'm really interested in like shifters. Right. And so um, that's another reason I love Katori, right? She's a fox shifter. And um, I think the issue becomes like, you know, does your thinking change? Like, are you different when you're in your animal form? I don't know. For me, that's like a fascinating thing about, um, you know, are you a monster? (laughs) Are you a human? What are you? I I really love shifters. And so if I had to pick something from this world um, that I would claim for my own, I probably would want to be a shifter. I've had those same thoughts too. Like what happens to the way they think and the way they communicate. Right. <clears throat> that's a that's a good one. So how would you use that? Would you you'd have so much fun with it? What would but what would what would the first thing you would do be? I don't know. I might go hunting, right? <laughs> well, what kind of animal would you want to shift into? Um well, something with four legs and something can run fast, right? So I um, I think that we laughed about other types of shifters. There is a shark shifter in our books. And I was like, okay, I don't want to do that. I would definitely not want to be swimming in the ocean. Right? It's in my animal form. No. But I could see like so, some people who are, who are much more at home in the water would feel like that would be fun for them. I've, when I first started writing, you know, you do all the, before you're published, do all the writing groups. And so you read lots of stuff that never sees the light of day. And one of the ladies that I worked with actually wrote a shifter story where the guy was a shift, became a shifter as a curse. So this giant biker dude became like a little lap poodle uh, (laughs) when he shifted is like sort of his eternal curse. So I, I think you can have a lot of fun with like what you shift into and almost 
like bipolar from what you are as you know your human form to what I you know. become. I mean, there is a lot of humor into it, right? Because like in books, there are always very glamorous shifters, like bears and wolves and things like that. But you know, what if you were I, I don't know a platypus? Maybe it's not very glamorous. <laughs> yeah, that could be interesting. So yeah, they are so cute. Doc, calm down. <laughs> so. Your universe obviously doesn't really have aliens in it, but you do have magical creatures. So when you create these magical creatures, how, how did you do that? Were you inspired by your nightmares? Did you let Mother Nature inspire you? Did you pull from those Chinese folklore, myth, and legend for this series? Definitely research. So we were looking through myth. We were combing through um, various uh, kind of ge ge geographical areas to pull some different types of creatures into our world. Um, and... I think that's maybe what the, the fun of writing in fantasy is, is that you can borrow heavily from mythology. Okay. So uh, before we start the wrap up stuff, um, if somebody said, hey, I'd like to get my kid reading more, and this sounds like it's interesting, what age range would you put this story at for someone to think about giving their their? Youngest? I already had this question today. So um, amazingly, my 11-year-old has read a lot of it. It is a... Uh, there's no profanity in this, right? Um, it's not steamy at all. It's I think it's age appropriate for kids who are already reading Rick Reardon or whatever. I mean, there there are some there are some scenes that I think could be scary, right? Because there's there's um, violence in these. But I, given what kids can watch in movies today, I feel like twelve and up is a pretty safe range. Yeah. Okay. So um, obviously this interview is winding down, but was there anything we didn't ask you about steaks and bones? And when I kept wanting to autocorrect to steak like what you eat. Um, so that's how, you know, I started another diet. But uh, so is there anything we didn't ask about steaks and bones in the Seattle Slayer series um, that you wanted to tell us? Oh, you guys are so thorough and you gave me ideas. You reminded me that like, yes, I should be like having signed stock available to sell direct because that was something that I had meant to do and like forgot. Now I'm going to talk to my website guy about getting that set up. But hey, there's still time before Christmas. Exactly. Yeah. Taxes get to be a pain. So you got to find ways to, to automate. Um, yeah, so you I have time to actually well. write the words. I think um, Katie Cross said that, you know, it was a little bit intimidating, but once she talked to her accountant, it all made sense and she was able to make it work. So I'm just take that attitude too. <laughs> there you go. All right. So dear listener, it's that time again, where I remind you to please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. Your reviews help the right readers find the right book. So do your part. And please remember that you are talking to other readers and you're telling them what you liked and what you didn't like and why. And it helps them decide. And sometimes you can have some fun uh, discussions in the comment sections. Well, you used to be able to before uh, Amazon shut that down. But you can still do that over on BookBub and Goodreads. Uh, and if that doesn't work for you, start a website and host your own dang reviews. But share the, share the goodness that is the literary crack we all love to ingest directly into our veins. Uh, and do your part. It really does help everybody uh, in this process. Um, so uh, as we wrap this up, Julia V, can you remind listeners how they can find you? And as usual, I'll put it in the show notes. Yes. So I am, you know, on social media as uh, www.juliav.com. I'm also on Facebook. Uh, my Twitter handle is uh, Valley Girl. It's uh, G-R-R-L. Okay, and um, you can find us, a dear listener, at Twitter 
on Twitter. It's twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show. Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email us at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. Again, blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. I promise we answer that one. You can send all hate mail today to docseska at gmail.com. She really loves to hear you tell her how she got everything wrong. Um, you can join us on Facebook where all the shenanigans happen, uh, including Doc torturing me with pictures of heretical pizzas. Um, at facebook.com backslash groups backslash a blasters and blades podcast again backslash groups backslash a blasters and blades podcast we do have a facebook page we do not have enough followers yet to have a dedicated url but we've been sharing that around so check out that page follow it hit the like share with your friends it helps us spread the good word it is the podcast and attract even more awesome guests to the show um, so that would be very helpful if you could do that dear listener you can support Find our website at anchor.fm backslash blasters, tack and tack blades. Again, anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades, where you can also help support the show for as little as 99 cents a month. You can help keep the lights on. And all of you that do that, we greatly appreciate it. You can support the show more directly at buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Be sure to put in the comment section that it is for the podcast. And I promise I will keep my co-hosts, Doc Seska and Nick Garber, duly caffeinated. They will drink until their liver explodes. It won't explode. It's science, Doc. It's science. I, I looked it up. JR, yeah, that's how it sounding. Did you look it up in the comic books again? Or in an actual That counts. Okay. Look, I want you to know I have a master's degree in science from Handwavium University. Oh, I love you. The fact that you actually think that is a real place is always so interesting. So, thank you. <laughs> All right, bring us home, Doc. <laughs> thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For the absentee Nick Carter, the Adelbrain JR Handley, I'm Seska. This was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week, same time, same place, indulging our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, picking on JR and all things that go boom or are sci-fi and fantasy.